Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sit next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you guys coming out. Um, if you haven't picked up a copy of my book, Lions of Marja, right here, it's on Amazon.com, $17.99, Lions of Marja, talk about Operation Mosh to Rock and the takedown of the city of Marja through the eyes of a squad. Uh, tonight we have a very uh, uh, distinguished guest in the, uh, in the sphere of my friends. His name is Chris Jones. He and I have not formally met face-to-face, and tonight's actually the first time we're talking through uh, through interview process like this, but, um, uh, our communication has been mostly through email. Uh, however, when you have friends as I have them, uh, you're told stories about amazing people. Um, you told, you told stories about amazing people, both in the military and out. Um, I was told to Chris Jones by a uh, former guest of the show, Johnny Glenn, his stories of the young JTAC became uh, being everything to the team that he was dis- uh, assigned captivated me. From the comedic relief to gunning down bad guys, Chris Jones was said to be the guy to have in the process. The more stories Johnny would tell me, the more interesting uh, I thought of the idea of meeting Chris and, and sitting down with him from... Uh, funny stories all the way through, uh, not so funny stories, but times where you need a good friend. Uh, now after linking up a few months, we've been coordinating and, uh, finally sit down a little while and share some of the conversations with the viewers. Um, so thanks Chris for coming out. But before, uh, before we get after it, here's a couple of quotes from, uh, from Johnny Glenn, Johnny motherfucking Glenn, as he likes to call himself, uh, uh, when I talked to him about you just uh, just recently when, when working up a monologue, he said, quote, if I had to go to war tomorrow, I'm making Chris Jones be my JTAC. And, quote, Chris was the most positive guy in any room with a head full of dark hair, you know, a good looking guy. And he had an infectious smile. You'll see that on the podcast. He was a smooth operator, both in the sky and on the ground. Chris is a force multiplier. So, Chris, with that, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming out. And, uh, you know, we've been talking it back and forth, looking at uh, looking at getting together and finally getting ready, getting to uh, to sit down and hash it out for a little while. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show, man. It's awesome. I've uh, I've watched some of the shows and I'm like, this is awesome. This is perfect. Like, I think you guys have really found a niche for for what we're looking for and like trying to bridge the gap between the military civilian life and trying to tell that story. You know, I think it's, I think it's something that needs to be told. And I, I think a lot of the guys in the community feel that it, it needs to be told too. So I appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, man. I appreciate you saying that, you know, and it's not, this isn't some, some grand plan that I thought up on my own. There's guys out there doing this. You have Jocko doing it for his community, Andy Stump doing it, his community team never quit. You've got Marcus Latrell and his guys in Dakota and, uh, Kyle Carpenter and their guys. And th- the bottom line is, is that um, 
in the military, in SF or in the regular infantry alike, in, at least in the Marine Corps, you're looking at, you know, like a microcosm of some of the best people on the planet, some of the people with the most honor, the most courage, the most steadfast dedication, and, and, and some of the most selfless people. And the bottom line is that four or five guys are not going to be able to tell the amount of knowledge and stories and wisdom that these guys have, you know, guys like that you've served with in the ODA teams, guys that I've served with in the regular infantry. There's tons of knowledge base out there. And, uh, you know, for our current current hitters, you never know when it's going to come. And so to have that knowledge base poured onto you electronically now at, at your fingertips, uh, there's not enough of us, you know, to, to tell every story that needs to be told. So um, that's kind of the basis of it. And if we can help veterans uh, in the transition and recovery process along the way and, you know, and, and inform um inform decisions uh both politically and apolitically then that's what we're looking to do yeah completely agree that's awesome man so uh so questions i generally start out with are early life i'd like to like to kind of get into your head a little bit of where you came from uh as i said offline you know i'm, I'm starting to work a book up right now for next year to release and it's uh it's a lot of my leadership failures and lessons learned along the ways and um and in it, I try to understand where leaders are built, where they come from, and where that process starts. So I like to ask, you know, where you came from? Uh, were there both parents in the household? Did you have siblings? Was there religion? And we'll kind of pick a, pick away at those ones and uh, spawn conversation from there. Yeah, um, those are all great questions that I feel like you could probably start podcasts on any one of those topics. So uh um, yeah, just uh, so I came from, I grew up uh, mostly outside of Denver, like in the suburbs. So um, as far as my parents, they were, my, my father was born in England. Well, I guess we should go back. My grandfather served in World War II. Um, he was over in England. He's kind of like a working, he was kind of a jack of all trades, but he ended up cooking for B-52 pilots and, and kind of managing the facility there. Uh, met my grandmother and then they had my father in England. So after that, my father came, or my grandfather came back from World War II. Uh, my grandfather was uh, served in World War II, um, was overseas um, in England, met my grandmother when he was over there serving during World War II, and then had my father. And uh, then my, when my grandfather was done, with, or when he was done serving World War II, came back, and then my grandmother came, and, and my father came as well. So uh, my father is more or less kind of American. He's, he's English-American. Um, my my grandfather's like a, a little bit of Indian in him, but uh, so kind of like a, a, a traditional kind of American upbringing. And then uh, what's different is that my mother is full Filipino, um, and she found out that she was a or my my grandmother was a citizen of the United States. She didn't find that out until she was twenty one. So the whole family came over, uh, and then my mother actually joined the army. Um, in the seventies. And then my father was served in the army as a, a chief warrant officer, uh, for 24 years. So they met in the army, um, both stationed in Germany. And then, yeah. Uh, so they kind of made a life for our family and that was in Denver. Um, and then I had one sibling, a sister, uh, she was two years younger. So, um, my father had been married before when he was in the military, they got divorced and then met my mother. Um, so I think when you ask that question, like we're both fam we're both parents present in the household, uh, I think that they were both present. And I think my dad was almost 
fully present, if that makes sense, like more present because of, I think he was trying to, to create a life that he, 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 I think maybe he had some, some things that he felt didn't line up in his previous marriage and was trying to make sure that, that those things lined up for him this time. So, um, so I think he was just trying to, to be a good father and set that good role model. I played every sport imaginable. So, I mean, I was out, I was the kid that when the lights went out or when the lights came on at night, you know, like my mom came out looking for me, you know, so (laughs) we were playing, I played soccer competitively throughout high school. Um, but I played in middle school in the younger ages, I played baseball, basketball. I like the whole garage was littered with sports equipment. Um, and it was just something that like, I always found solace in, you know, like it was something that I, I, I cherished. I loved the sport. I loved gaming. I love that competitive nature. So that was something that I think, um, kind of crafted who I was or my personality and how I approach life and approach like teamwork. I don't, I don't think anything gets done individually, you know, like I think it takes a team effort. So uh, yeah. The team guy saying that <laughs> it makes exactly. sense. Hey, uh, I harp on it all the time on the podcast and, um, uh, and in my new book, I have a, a section dedicated strictly to like coaches and and the impact that coaches have on young people um as they go and, and to young parents out there that um a coachable kid is a teachable kid and a teachable kid becomes a teachable and a coachable and an impressionable adult and they can work in a team environment and so it's something that i find very uh important when raising kids when raising leaders is that you introduce them to different types of leadership styles different people and and ultimately at the earliest possible age getting them to a place where they can where they can compete with people with peers and uh and you learn to follow and you learn to lead that way so and most of the leaders um in my life that have been impressionable on me i find that they were they were heavily inundated with sports and competition from from very early ages so um, yeah. and, and, and that's it's funny you say that because my father-in-law actually is, uh, he went to the Academy and he, the air force Academy, and then he mandated that all of his children had to play sports in high school. So they had to do something. And he kind of accredits that like teamwork, that group effort, everything to like, you have to create this thing that's more than yourself to work towards, to reach like your full potential, you know, like we can always let ourselves down, but it's so hard to let other people down. You know, like it, it just kind of pushes you a little bit more. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the doing something for a team and you struck on it right there. Something I, something I love is that what I didn't realize brought me peace was doing something bigger than myself, dedicating and sacrificing for something sometimes that I get nothing out of, but it's helping somebody else. And then the blessings just hit you you know, and waves. Yeah. And, um, and I love that. So, all right. So picking up from there, uh, you, you play competitive, uh, soccer in, uh, in high school and what was, what was your catalyst to service? That's another thing that I like to ask. What was the catalyst for you even to come in and what was the earliest member, uh, memory you have of, you know, really wanting to do what you did? Yeah. It's so my, my grandfather served, my grandmother served, um, my father served, my mother served. Uh, so, for me, military service wasn't this, it wasn't something, I guess that was like a, the next thing for me, it was like, it was, it was just the thing. Like I I kind of always, yeah, I always just thought that it was something I needed to do something that was like, kind of just bred in there. I mean, my dad's whole personality is, is crafted around being a chief warrant officer, you know, Mm -hmm. like, 
is it's everything it's 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 his identity for for doing that for 24 years you know so for me it, it was just something that was uh it, yeah i mean i was in high school i was a junior in high school when 9 11 happened and i'm just watching the tv and you know like you just you just know like i just knew it's like this is it so uh i thought that i wanted to go to college for a year or go to college and get a degree and um so i tried to do that for a year and then I just realized that I didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of going to school just to go to school. I didn't really have that purpose. And then I, I uh, just kind of turned around. I was like, there's this war going on, you know, like it's important. It's something going on. Like at the time I thought that it would be a year or two, you know, like, I think we all thought that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, there was kind of this pace, like, okay, I need to turn around and hurry and get in, you know, mm-hmm. like I got to do it now if I'm going to do it. Otherwise I'm going to kind of miss this chance. So went and talked to the recruiter and, and, uh, I went to the army recruiter and I was looking at the, the x-ray program and then went back and talked to my dad and he was like, no, nah, you should join the air force. And I was like, that's, I, I don't know what the air force does. So I just went and talked to him. The recruiter's like, you can come in if you want. I don't care. Like I have all the numbers I need, you know? So, yeah. but he shows me combat control and, um, and they had like guaranteed, if you make it through, you go to dive school, you go to halo school. And I was like, like you're going to pay me to skydive and scuba yeah. dive and, and like go to all these awesome schools and like have an opportunity to work with SF or work with seals, work with Marsat, you know, like, like that sounds like a good gig, you know? So, yeah. uh, so I signed up and I mean, I made it. So I was, it was about two, two and a half years of, of training and, and finally got to team and, and got to do that. So, but the, uh, I mean, I always say like, yeah, I had a call to service, but I look back and I'm like, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, like <laughs> I saw these stories. I had friends that had gone through the x-ray program and they were telling me what they were doing. I was like, that sounds, that sounds awesome. You know, like a young reckless kid looking for adventure, like school just wasn't answering that at 18 yeah. years old, you know? So, um, yeah, so probably, I mean, I, I look back and I'm like, it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made outside of my wife and kids, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, I get it. The, my feelings are mutual. I, I owe a debt to the mentors and then to my service to the Marine Corps set me up for, you know, to have fundamental building blocks to be a successful human being, first of all. And, yeah. you know, along the way, there's bumps and bruises and any organization is going to have that usually derived from the people within the organization, not the organization itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I love the Marine Corps. I love the armed services for what they do what they provide. You said a minute ago that you, you've told people or if you've mentioned having a call to service and that's kind of my story. The nine 11 really solidified my, uh, my call to service. And it was like something in my gut, like that there wasn't another option that was just going to be the way. And, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people relate to that, but, uh, but like, uh, like yourself, Matt Charette, the, the co-host is, uh, of the show here. He, uh, he's got like 25 family members and different various, positions in their career through the Marine Corps and and different, you know, service branches all the way back. Like if you ask him to list it off, you need to have like a drink and a snack ready because he's going to, he's going to list a lot of names, but, uh, but yeah, some of it's family, uh, family driven, some of it's calling driven. Um, I like it. So you say you get into the pipeline and that the pipeline's two and a half years. Is that generally the same for anybody coming through the pipeline Uh, or or, you know, is it like structured, like you're going to go here, then you're going to go here, then you're going to go here, or is it you hop around a little bit? How's that work? 
Yeah, there's kind of two sections of it. When I went through it, it obviously changed since um, since I went through. So I joined in 2003. Uh, so right when they were like, I think John Kerry was like, we need to double special operations, you know. So I was right before that. I'm like in the pipeline when he says that. So everything's kind of changed since then. But generally, it's it's two two years uh, to two and a half years, depending on on all the schools. So we have Air Force Special Operations as like pararescue and combat control at the time. They're kind of the two options that you have. And I wasn't very medically driven. I wasn't really about saving people's lives. I was more about taking people's lives. Yeah, so I was, that was kind of where, I think you're in either camp, you know? So, uh, so yeah, that's the, the school was, it was hard. I went through like the Air Force basic training. It was hard to be in that because I knew what I was getting ready for. And it just wasn't enough physical exercise. So I remember working out outside of like in the barracks at night, you know, with the other candidates. Cause you know, like I, I probably not going to make it if I only do three pull-ups, you know, a week. Yeah. And I got to show up to that. So, um, so that wasn't, that was basic training was hard and that you're getting like pulled away from your family and all that. But I think everyone was kind of waiting to go to the start the pipeline, but yeah. So then it turns in after you leave basic, you go to like, I mean, you show up to this assessment and you're doing pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, like hundreds, and you got to run and you got to swim, you know, and it's like, I haven't been in a pool for two months and you want me to show up and swim 500 meters at a certain time. And so that they've changed a lot of that stuff around. So now they have like in basic training, they have guys and gals that are going through that pipeline and they get to go to a special basic training that prepares them for mm. a specific course, which is cool. And I think yeah, useful. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and so uh, what, what all do you do? I mean, I see it's a litany of, of, of different certifications and different courses that you're going through. Uh, everything from airborne to seer, underwater egress, combat controls, uh, control week, uh, communications, demolition, small unit tactics, land nav. This is all, all of this land air, airfield seizure. This is all through the pipeline schooling. Yeah. And that okay. first part of probably the first year uh, that you just listed off so that you have the first year of where you're going through that assessment course, you go to airborne. The one thing that's in there that, that should be in there is air traffic control school. So we have, you more or less become a, a certified air traffic controller uh, mm-hmm. and you can go get your rating after that. So that's a, a three month, three month pipeline survival school, and then the underwater egress. And then you go to what's kind of, it's a pinnacle school, it's a year in, but you get your beret once you graduate from from this school. And that's a combat control school. And it's where the hell week is. It's where your land, your large land nav portion is. You're doing full mission profiles with like airfield seizures, uh, airfield surveys, all that stuff. Awesome, All, all awesome stuff. And so in August of 2005, you arrive at your initial duty station and you train up for deployment. Who, what was your initial station duty station? Yes, I went to Pope Air Force Base in uh, North Carolina. It's attached to Fort Bragg. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, over so, there SF. SF. There are a lot of SF at Fort Bragg, right? Yeah, you have their whole Q courses there. So you have the whole training pipeline there. And there's just about two years long. So you have all those trainees that are going through that. And then you also have third group and then seventh group are mm-hmm. both stationed there. So mm-hmm. they both have different regions, but they're both at the same, same co-located. I think seventh group actually moved recently, but so. I have to ask Johnny. Wasn't Johnny part of seventh? Johnny's part of third group. Third, uh, okay. We he was third. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And so. okay. So take it from there. How, how's the training? How's the training for a workup going? At least for you. Yeah. Guys. So, 
So the first year of training uh, in the pipeline's good. Then the second year you do like a lot of, so you go to halo school, you go to um, dive school, then you're doing like full mission profiles. So you're doing combat search and rescue. You're doing uh, a bunch of like, you'll do direct action stuff. You're doing like full mission profiles for another three months. Then you get your first duty station. What you don't have yet is a JTAC rating. So you haven't gone to the JTAC course. So when we show up, I have five guys that came out of the pipeline with me and we're at our new unit and we're, we get to our team and I'm the lowest ranking cause I'm the youngest. And, uh, they're like a deployment's coming up, but it's not a JTAC deployment. So it's a airfield survey seizure, like, um, kind of, you go all over the place and you're mm -hmm. doing a bunch of airfield stuff, but you're not, you're not attached to an ODA or a SEAL team calling in cast and that stuff. So it's a different mission set. So I was youngest. I said, yeah, I'll go. And so. I think about six months of train up and then I'm deploying with, with, uh, like a unilateral air force team. Mm -hmm. So we go to Afghanistan and I got, um, I think it's like a five man team and we're, we're kind of all over Afghanistan. We're doing a bunch of airfield survey seizures, not seizures, but, uh, like airfield maintenance stuff that, that entails, like we go to bases and they want to open up a base there and we go make sure that the airfield is good. It's pretty austere. It's kind of a little far off. So they need a little security detail. So we kind of do that, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it ended up being cool. We shifted to, to Africa. So like the task force guys were um, doing a lot of stuff in Somalia. So Ethiopia was, was getting attacked by some warlords out of Somalia. So they pretty much pushed them back with, with their, with their military. And we were helping them out by hitting targets um, like key, key targets. So we helped the task force to go look for airfields in Somalia that they could pull all the aircraft down so they could launch missions out of there so they were closer Got so it. at night yeah we could we could kind of uh, be a little bit closer be on target a little bit faster we could run missions more efficiently so it kind of shifted to africa and then my deployment was kind of split between those two gotcha so. that's good experience though and i'm sure served you well in, in the future of knowing knowing the things that you learn on that uh on those airfields and on yeah, those on those assessment teams and and you know it's not like um some guys get dropped right in the fire in their first deployment. And, you know, I'm not saying that they don't perform well. Guys always perform, it seems like. But if I had a choice of whether to, you know, get a soft deployment to kind of get my wits about me, get my legs about me, I would choose yeah. that every time. So. Yeah, it can be overwhelming, you know. Like you show up, new country, new team, new everything, and now you're expected to execute at a high level right off the bat. You know, like sometimes for us, it's hard because we get swapped in with mm -hmm. a team that might already be two, three months in action, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're climaxing and we're like just showing up and expected to perform, you know, because our deployment cycles are, are a little off. So now we'll explain that. Why is that? Why are you just meeting them when you're dropping into them? Yeah. So the air force has just a different deployment cycle and how they pull people in. And so the army, like in ODA's training, they're doing their training cycle, they're deploying, then they're coming back and doing professional readiness or whatever they need all in the same cycle. Mm -hmm. We're not training with ODA's all year. We train unilaterally by ourselves. So, uh, on the, on the next deployment, we might go, we might bring 40 guys and we're all getting pretty much farmed out to the teams that need us the most. So mm -hmm. Usually the teams have the most action. So yeah. I remember out West, they had a bunch of Marine teams that were getting hit a ton. And so they, they ended up shifting a bunch of us from ODAs over to, to your guys, to, to the Marines out West. So just kind of like depending on, on kind of who needs 
uh, JTACs or, or combat controllers. So Check. the difference is that we're like, you guys might be there, you might be there for two months and then our rotation, our unit is coming in and the next unit is coming out and our rotations are maybe five to six months. And some of the army rotations were like six months, nine months, sometimes mm-hmm. 12 months, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, they don't, they don't, we don't, we don't follow the same system. We don't have the same resources, stuff like that. So we, we kind of funnel it in and out as we see fit. So now, is there, um, have you experienced like, uh, growing pains or, or, or any kind of like parochial attitudes in the services? Like, like, uh, I know for me when it's integrating into teams and I'm not trying to put you on the spot to blast anybody, no. but it can be hard, especially if you're hitting for two months and then some new guy shows up, especially like the pressure of that first mission where it's like, okay, new guy, like need you to perform. And then you got to perform or you don't perform. Right. And like some of that stuff uh, can get, can get difficult growing pains. And then sometimes, um, sometimes you have somebody like, you know, Gunny John Wayne Williams, who I had on previously took his assault guys out with an ODA and come back from one mission. And the ODA says, we're never leaving without you guys again. Like there's those ones too. But did you experience any of that when you were, uh, transitioning different teams throughout your career, especially there in the beginning? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, these guys are operating at a high level. There's a lot of personalities, you know, um, and, and it can be difficult. I, I don't think I had a lot of difficulty with that. I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing guy, I think. Um, and I'm pretty flexible and I try to be resilient in that. Like I try to say, Hey, this is, this sucks, but you know what, I'll find the optimism here and make it work and try to try to pull the best that I can. Like this, this, it's all learning opportunities, you know, like I've always lived by the model that you volunteer for anything and everything because the shit that you're going to get that no one else volunteered for, that means you're gaining experience that no one else wanted to do. And that mm. stuff's going to be valuable later when everyone needs that, you know? So, sure, sure. um, so I, I did find it sometimes. Um, it's, it's unique in the air force cause we're dropped in. Right. And I would be in Afghanistan with an ODA from third group and then seventh group was rotating out. So I'd watch how third group would operate. Then I'd see a seventh group team come in and I'd be like, okay, completely different strategy, completely different execution. But you know what? They got the job done, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, see, so you, you'd kind of like, I really appreciated that every ODA operated differently, not only from group to group, but like team to team, you know, like you're talking about teams that train together, were executing missions very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was probably the benefit of, of being there and seeing that is seeing different teams operate differently. And, and understanding that they're getting the mission done in a, in a slightly different way. Yeah. It's you know, a, but, that's a, a wealth of knowledge to come out of that. I, I can only imagine. I envy that because you get to, you get to watch that cross culture uh, accomplish the same task. You're seeing many different ways of people that all operate at a high level, both tactically and strategically yeah. and watch the different scenarios and the different ways that they can take it down. And like my hats off to all SF and, and uh in every one of the forces because that is what like i always had a hankering to do that and and my career just didn't get there before the time was up i i uh had always aspired to be there and there's something to say about sf guys is like if nothing else every one of them uh voluntarily suffered and sacrificed in selection uh 
to get where they are. And that's not saying that there's not guys out there that still are scumbags or they still want to, you know, that get through the cracks or, you know, you know, are compromised morally or ethically. But it does say that when I look to my left and my right, none of you were meant to be here. None of you were forced to be here beside me. Every one of you wanted to be here bad enough to sacrifice the same that I had to sacrifice to be here. And there's something to be said about that. And there's also something to be said about when these guys train at a high level and, and, and actually work at a high level the way they do always, and they stay together. Um, they keep those teams together for long periods of time. And I understand that's not you know, always feasible in the regular infantry and things of that nature, but if we could figure out how to make that a feasible thing in the regular infantry, we would have more lethal regular infantry components in my opinion and it's just something yeah. something that uh, sf has always had that i admired so so you you do the um afghanistan somalia kenya looks like Djibouti, ethiopia cutter you do these air surveys in in several different places here and spread out some time uh and mm-hmm. travel all the way through the oef theater to support multiple units uh with air what's that aircraft impl- uh, implement implementation yeah and what, what's that regarded? Oh, is this on the first one? The no, yeah, I mean, what, what's that mean, though? Like, what, is that the same the same as you've already discussed as far as looking at the oh. airfields or? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's it could be anything from, okay, we need to, so like in, we were in um, Somalia looking for airfields to land U.S. aircraft and forward stage so that we could assault more targets in Somalia quicker. Okay, that's what that's uh, we go to like. Yeah, we were like Kenya and it's they were flooding and so a bunch of Somali refugees were going to Kenya. So we're looking for drop zones to drop relief, you know. So mm. um, so it's kind of all anything dealing with aircraft, uh, whether it's run an airfield, look for an airfield that and survey it to to certify it. Um, it's kind of like a global asset. Go anywhere and everywhere to to wherever aircraft need to be. So uh, it was a unique mission to us. It's very like it's it's our core bread and butter, and so mm-hmm. it's cool to be able to come out of the pipeline and go straight into that. So that that was an awesome job, and it just created a really like strong foundation and base for my own development. So which is awesome. But, oh yeah, and uh, okay. So where do we go from there? Come back from that deployment and working up again, yeah. or yeah. So I come back. I don't. I don't have wife, no kids. You know, so I'm like send me back. Um, so <laughs> I go and. The, the five guys that I were with were training up for their JTAC stuff to go on the next deployment. So I'm like, whatever they did, like send me. So I come back, I go right to the JTAC school. I come right back and I'm like caught up with them. And so now we're all training again to go on the next rotation. And uh, so this next rotation, I go on a, uh, they actually have a previous one. So one that's going to come before our next unit deployment. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that too. So they, they sent me on it. I will, I, you know, like it's, you know, like if, if it's like, if I could go to any point in time in my life and go back and I, like, I didn't have wife and kids or whatever, like I would just go, I would just go overseas and I would just operate, you know? Um, so this was a cool mission. It was supporting task force guys. And I went to Iraq and these guys, it was during what, 2007, I think. So they're doing, I mean, this is like the surge and they're like, you guys are doing one to two missions a week fuck that we're doing seven missions a week like you need to be going out every night every green team every 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 operator is going out so they had like tier one seals tier one um, army guys they had all the sas guys going out every night so we were providing combat search and rescue for all of these teams all over iraq 
So we were flying every night. If there were more operations going on in the North, we'd fly up there and stage. And um, what was awesome is like a young JTAC, I was able to watch everything that these guys, like everyone at the true top tier, like perform, you know, like I'm watching them on ISR. I'm seeing what they're doing. I'm watching their tactics. They come back. I get to sit in the debrief room and like ask them questions. And they're, they're just like, like talk about leadership. Like these guys were taking us under the wing and they were just grooming us, you know? And so they were just giving us all the secrets to the test. You know, they were like, Hey, this is, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're doing it. You're watching us do this right now, but like, this is stuff that you can take. And when you're on the ODA or you're going and doing those tier two missions, like this is how you operate and this is how you do it. And I, I owe like a, a huge debt of gratitude to some of those guys that are on that deployment. Cause it truly gave me the confidence to be dropped in. I could, after that deployment, I was ready. I could have been dropped anywhere and I probably would have like hit the ground running and been ready, you know? So it was awesome to, to kind of see that, see those guys operating at that level. And it kind of lit that fire, you know, it was, it was a new fire. Like these guys are doing what? <laughs> no, like, fuck. Yes. Like, and this so. is direct, direct action raids, I'm assuming, and just straight getting after yeah. it against the enemy or. Yeah, I'm going to try. Uh, yeah, mostly direct action raids. Like they're going out every night. The SAS guys were going out at one night and then coming back, dropping things off and going right back out for another mission in the same night. Like getting right back on the helo. Like they're not even turning the helos off, you know? <laughs> they're just getting right back on the helo and going out. I was like, this is fucking awesome. These guys are bad. Yeah, they're bad motherfuckers. And the, I mean, some of the missions are awesome. Like, I have I had never seen a a vehicle interdiction before, you know, and to watch the coordination of every all the air assets, everything that's going on there was was like it just raised the level, you know. And when you see that, like, I'm sure it's like when you're playing basketball in college and you see these NBA players and you get into that team room and you see what they're doing and what they're studying, you're like, there's a whole nother level to this. Mm -hmm. it, you all, you don't even play another game, but your level is already raised, you know, mm -hmm. like you already know that the expectations for what you're capable of are at, at something you never thought possible. And so you just immediately like upload. And I noticed a change in myself, you know, like I started going and crunching radio, um, like frequencies and figuring out matrices. And I was trying to figure out my kit better and, start getting into weapons more and like just started like raising everything around me to to be a better operator because i wanted to to be at that level or be close to that level you know mm -hmm. so. now when you say to watch an, a vehicle interdiction walk me through that because the way you said it you were blown away or maybe just uh taken aback by what what all is involved in that and and like paint the picture for the audience yeah so i think uh a nighttime raid is, is awesome. And I had done a couple, not, a, not at that point, but I would later do some in my, in my own deployments, but <clears throat> watching that was like, okay, very planned. Here's the target. Here's the contingencies. We'll sit through the normal brief. And it was awesome to see that stuff executed. And I, I won't say I got tired of it, but it was like, there was, we had a template and the template was working, you know, and whatever tactics were working at the time was awesome. And you kind of controlled it more like we controlled the nighttime more, you know, but the daytime mission is riskier. Um, <clears throat> I know you're familiar with that because the infantry is like infantry or some of these like larger army units, like they have to operate day and night. They don't have a choice, you know, and you got to occupy places and land and you, you don't have a choice. It's, it's a difficult mission. So to watch a day raid go on 
with a vehicle is like the timelines are shorter, right? Like you have a very finite timeline to get in. Um, they already know what's coming. Usually we're, it's, it's a pretty bad dude, you know? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> everything, the escalation of force happens so quickly and there's so many things that could go wrong that it, it's just like the risks are so high, you know? And so to see a team train for that and to get ready for that and then to execute that stuff was, was amazing. And, um, and then to be part of the debrief after, like to see what they were thinking, how they went through all that stuff to, to understand what they would have done differently. Like mm-hmm. it's like sitting with LeBron and seeing what he's thinking about, you know, like it was, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. That's the, sometimes the difference between professionals and amateurs in the sport is like, like take golf, for instance, I love golf and I'm not good at it. I'm not consistent yeah. at it, but when I watch golf on TV and I watch like a tiger or somebody like that, look at his caddy and say, Hey, how far is that? And the caddy says, uh, 162. And he says, okay, are you sure? And he says, no, 163. And that level of knowledge on your swing and on your mechanics and everything, that's the level that these guys are at these tier one assets. Like they're at that level. And then when you like what you're saying, it's a different ball field. And then when you get into that level and you get into those minds, like you, your analogy of what, like wondering what LeBron would say after games, perfect analogy. These guys are coming in because they're playing chess and then they're going to debrief that chess game as soon as they're done and say, so tomorrow when we play chess again, we need to change this a bit. Well, we need to change that a bit. And that goes on everywhere. I mean, even in the regular infantry, we're constantly changing and adapting uh, TTPs to, you know, to better kill people. But at that level where you've yeah. got those guys that have been doing it, some of these guys do it their entire careers. I mean, Johnny was, what, 10, 10 plus deployments? And some of you guys just get after it constantly, staying after it, staying after it. And then you have that knowledge base. And yeah. uh, it's impeccable. And then, like I said before, it just builds that great team environment and that great uh, knowledge base and, and learning environment for for guys coming in. Yeah. And yeah. so it, fl- flying helicopters almost every night, you're watching this, you're learning this, and you're taking that into your next deployment, I'm assuming. Yeah, we had a couple incidents, but it wasn't anything that was like worth reckoning. It was like hard landings on helicopters so they'll come in and they they slam down and then they 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 more or less crash land but it's not a hard crash it's like a soft it's it's like a bump a big bump all the guys get off they go execute the mission but they need us to come in and destroy the, the helicopters or do something you know so that was kind of the extent of of my deployment um as far as exciting but it was it was awesome flying every night watching these guys on isr being part of an organization that's that's operating that level was 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 inspiring so yeah yeah and this was a little different in that the so i was supporting a task force element so they were on the same training cycle so they knew their training back plan and so i showed up at their back plan trained up with them then went on deployment with them so it was a little more planned and organized in that sense because they had more control over that but uh yeah it was a little bit easier in that sense um What's next? Yeah. So then I get into, now I'm just deploying as a JTAC. So I come back from that. I don't even stay two weeks and I sell. They had deployment locations overseas in Afghanistan. So the next one was uh, Aruzgan province, like Cobra forward mm-hmm. operating base, which is pretty close to, I think, where you were mm-hmm. at Helmand or Helmand. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I forget when this, they, they all meshed together for me, Shit, but I get uh, it. <laughs> so 2008. So this is my first deployment. Um, with an ODA, so third group team again, uh, 
great team. It was an awesome team, actually. Um, and this plank, I don't know if you've heard of Cobra, but it's pretty infamous. I've heard of it. I have not been there. Yeah, it's it was the Wild West. So if I could go back to any place, that's probably where I would go. <laughs> and to be honest, I'd probably take Johnny's team with me. Um, <laughs> And we would probably kill a ton of people, yeah. uh, a bunch of bad dudes. So the, the deployment was awesome. I showed up. Uh, the, the leadership was great. They were at about four months of operating. So I only had about two months to operate them, but they were peak, right? And I'm like ready to go too, because I just came off this task force right. watching on the sidelines. And I'm like, what do, we, what do you need me to do? You know, so. Time to flip the switch. Yeah. So yeah. I get there, I'm, I'm ready. And, and we show up and, and they're going on another mission. Uh, it's probably about a week long. And this is the first kind of combat mission, real combat offensive mission that we're doing. So it's about a day to get to this village, um, the village south of it. So past that village, we think there's, pro it's probably a large training camp of like Taliban fighters mixed with some Al Qaeda guys. So we go to the, we take a day, we get to the village. We probably have to clear 10 or 15 IEDs on the road heading out there. So um, local police, local uh, army, Afghan armies with us. And they're walking the roads with metal detectors, pulling out IEDs while we're traveling. So um, yeah, finally get to like a, it was like a first ridge and uh, start taking rocket fire. Uh, from the village that we suspected. So not the Taliban training camp, but the, the next village in um, where we suspected it. Like they're always sure. like, yeah. So I sit down, we, we, we end up taking some rocket fire. It's, it's more or less kind of just some pop shots. Like they probably just set up some rockets, fired them, took off. Talking about so, like Chinese 107 style rockets. I think so. Yeah. And maybe some stuff they just laid down on some rocks and, you know, and then yeah, just yeah. fired it in the general popular the general area and um so we sit down and we plot like i i they're like the the commander had been there for for several times now and so he's like this is the homes they fight from and i was like shit that's exactly where the rockets came from mm -hmm. like this is where the isr was picking up some stuff he's like this is the other house that they usually fight from fight fret from and so the sigint bird is picking up stuff from there and so i'm like okay this is like this seems like you guys already have all the pieces for me, you know? So, uh, yeah. we take, yeah, we take some more fire and, and we end up dropping some rockets into the house. Um, we didn't want to go into the village yet because we knew that there's probably going to be more trouble than, than we're ready for right now. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of just sat on this ridge and camped there that night and we're camping there. Like I'm watching just, I mean, probably hundreds of women and children leaving the village and they're going up into the mountains. So yeah, it's like, okay, this is it. So, uh, there's another the cool part of the tactic stuff was that there was like a ridge that they always fought from and they kind of did this L ambush, like large scale L ambush. And so they'd fret from the village, fret from this ridge top, and we'd have to go right in the middle. So we knew they would likely do the same thing. So at like two, three in the morning, we sent a recce team up there and put them about 50, 100 meters up the, up the ridge further. So uh, they went up at two or three, we start cruising at six or seven. Um, one of the trucks hits a, a double stacked anti-tank Russian mine. Um, guys get blown out of the top, guys are blown out the doors, but they're relatively unscathed. So Odiegas, yeah, but they're, they're kind of messed up, but they're, they're still, they're fine, but like they don't need a medevac bird right now. They're kind of stable and everything. So 
we're already starting to take some fire. We're pushing the convoy forward. So these IEDs were in the back. So it was almost as if it was, they were trying to force us into the funnel. So they, they, that stuff had been set off and then we were pushing like the majority of the convoy was already forward. So they were kind of trying to force us into this funnel and then they had um, more ambushes set up there. Yeah, so we had about two ODAs with us. So we're going to do two maneuvering elements. So four four trucks in, in my ODA, and then probably four trucks in the other ODA. Sure. Uh, one was going to go down the wadi on the other side, and we were going to take the main road into the village. Uh, I think 12 guys on each ODA. So probably 12 here, 12 there, and then uh, maybe 15 to 20 either Afghan national police or Afghan national army guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So kind of, we try to keep it as local as possible, you know, try to keep that local face on every, on all the maneuvers that we're making. Sure. Um, yeah. So we start maneuvering down into the village and then we take fire or actually the guys that were up there on the Ridge U S guys, they start seeing these guys in the morning, move up the Ridge mm -hmm. and they sit down in the same spot with a dishka and they just wait. And so we knew that they were up there. So I'm in the lead truck and we're driving down and all of a sudden just fire opens up. Boom, boom. Yeah. So we're just kind of eating more or less eating rounds in the first truck. Um, I'm just sitting down cause I know that they have a beat on them. So I'm like, okay, I'll just eat these for now, you know, but we're also kind of taking fire from the village as well, but, but pretty small arms. Mm -hmm. Like it was kind of well organized. They were, they were definitely pacing it. So we, the leadership was awesome. They'd already been through this. So they're like, just hold it, keep going. Like we're going to move Chris, get the, like, I'm starting to drop coordinates for where all these houses are that we're taking fire from. Mm -hmm. And I've called in Cass. So Cass is on its way, um, or close air support. So we have aircraft coming in. So, uh, so I'm still kind of eating these rounds. I start to lose comms. So like I have to get out of the truck and I'm just kind of using the truck Cause we had the jammers on so I'm like, what do you want to do? You know, like you turn off yep. the jammer to talk to the aircraft or do you eat some IEDs and you know, yep. so we keep the jammers on. I try to just kind of maneuver out of the truck to get better comms and the bird shows up. Once the bird shows up, it's a B 50, uh, not sorry. It's a B one B, uh, Lancer bomber. So huge aircraft. They have a ton of bombs on there and, and I passed them all the coordinates. And that's like, okay, those are pretty large buildings. Like I want the largest munitions you got. And they're like, we got four 2000 pound bombs coming down. So yeah, that'll work. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's like my first real time in combat. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just unload it. You know, <laughs> I can send it. So full send. <laughs> full send. So the bomber, like it takes a while. So the bomber's like going around and they're coming in and, but they have the, they have these 2000 bound bombs coming in, which, which is the largest bomb you can drop out of an aircraft. So, I mean, these are pretty large munitions. So bombers coming around and then we coordinated and say, okay, can you guys go down and take out that dishka now? So as the bombers coming around, the guys walk down the, the chute, they're coming down the ridge. They just chuck a bunch of grenades in there and, and take care of those guys. Um, they just dismounted okay. their trucks and grenade, grenade volleyed in. <laughs> No, so the recce team that we had sent up to the ridge to, to plot, uh, uh, they stopped, they were just sitting and waiting. And then they waited for us to get all the coordinates for the bombs in the village. So as the bombs were like bombs away, we, we probably had like two or three minutes. They started walking down the ridge, threw some grenades in there, um, took out those guys. One guy took a through and through in the leg. Um, 
but he was able to be carried down. He could walk down and, and got carried down for some of the steeper parts. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So we took a pretty heavy volley of fire before that or taking rockets, um, small arms fire that Dishka was tearing us up. Um, but, uh, it, 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 it got quiet for about 15, 20 minutes after we dropped the four bombs and then took out the, uh, the overwatch mm-hmm. position. So, um, then all the fire was kind of isolated into the village. And then it was like, I mean, we were at an elevated position. We didn't have anyone behind us, you know? So like, I was just standing outside the truck calling in targets, you know, it was like, I was at the range almost like <laughs> just working it. And so they were shooting. They just hopped from building to building. No, there were trenches between each building. We only mm-hmm. found this out afterwards and we went down and did all the site exploitation, but, uh, I ended up Winchestering the B1. So Winchester means that they don't have any more munitions and they have to go, yeah. uh, which is like my first deployment dropping stuff. <laughs> and the bomber is out of bomb. You know, it's like, okay, what else do I do now? So check. <laughs> it was cool. It was an awesome experience. Um, probably one of my most memorable experiences. So we ended up just moving through the village. This was probably like an eight hour firefight kept going. Um, it, it became like a game of maneuvering. They would maneuver. We would maneuver for better position. They would fall back. We would maneuver, you know, and try to push them into the mm-hmm. wadi. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we had the guys that got the the through and through. We put them on a medevac bird behind us and got those guys out. So that was good, kind of coordinating all that. That was that was exciting as a JTAC. Like you you hear stories of dropping bombs and running, doing gun runs, and the medevac birds coming in to evacuate. So. It's like my first deployment, I get my first combat, real combat experience, and I get to do all that. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was truly fulfilling, you know, like I'm three, four years in now. And like, I was like, this is, this is awesome. You know, exactly like what I wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, fortunate enough, like I, I say combat's half skill, half luck, you know, and fortunately no one lost their lives you know, like no one was killed and that that's always a plus and i know that other guys have to deal with that and that's it's hard to tell these stories you know that's why like i i have so much jovialness with it is because I, I feel really proud about it but i also know that i was pretty lucky you know like we're talking inches like that guy's is through and through his inches away from his femoral you know like the guys that took helmet like helmet shot you know like so it's like yeah we're only inches away from from yeah from tragedy so but yeah but i mean i think that's what um is so impressionable in our minds about it because it was a it was a time you were that close away and for whatever reason your skill your luck uh came together for you and you were able to you know uh, escape without having anybody you know mortally wounded and um it's awesome man I, i try to tell people too like i love my kids i love my wife joys of my life but a close second really teeters with leading people in combat especially when you had you know good days like that you have good days yeah. like that bad days come and that's part of the yeah. territory but when you have good days like that and everything you've done in your adult life to train for a focal point and a climax comes together and then your team is able to uh, navigate that um, circumstance the way you've yeah trained the way you're supposed to do it uh with honor that's there's nothing there's not too many things that 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 touch that to me so that's no, where it's at we'll never, we'll never be that cool again right <laughs> that's so. a fact that's a fact the cool days are over that's right yeah 
Hey, that's okay with me. I had my fun. I had my fun. I had my tragedy. I had my uh, my trauma and and built brother uh, brotherhood with people that uh, yeah that right now is impossible to build in the current uh, situation that we have. You know, we're not at war every day. We're not doing kinetic deployments right now. <clears throat> all of us. So, uh, and that's where it comes. I, I make mention of that in, in the book. You know, you hear as a as a warrior growing up and and, and practicing warrior ethro, ethos and and uh, reading about the people that come before you you have the you know that brotherhood is always brought up the brotherhood of the warrior and you don't get that training at camp lejeune and training in verona and going to the club and you know uh you know having girls to the barracks that's not where you get that um yeah. a lot of people confuse that but you take somebody that's best friends 16 years, 17 years with somebody and say, okay, that's your best friend. And I, and I know how you feel about that friend. And then let me put you in a kinetic deployment for seven months with somebody you don't know. And then you're hard pressed to say that you're not close to that person at the end of it, or maybe sometimes not even close, not even close to being hard pressed. It's just like, that's what happens in, in extreme uh, situations. So I'll yeah, never, like, uh, I would take that one step further and say, like, now imagine that you lost that friend, you know, mm. like, that's how that, I mean, that's what that that's what that, that that's more or less what happened to me, you know, like best friend would have been best man in my wedding was killed. So it's it's that's that's my tragedy, you know, like I wasn't so like he was this Andy Harvell was killed on August 6, 2011 with those 31 other seals um, mm -hmm. was shot, shot down in that Chinook. And so. When red I was dawn, getting right? out, uh, not Red Dawn. Um, was it Red Dawn? No, that was, this was the, uh, this is in 2011. The, the Chinook was just shot down. They were operating another mission. Okay, good. Gotcha. Um, yeah, but it's the, I don't know if you've heard like the 31 Heroes workout or all, it was the right. largest heel casualty um, in the war. But Andy was the controller on that, uh, on that SEAL team at, at uh, Dev Group. So, uh, for me, it's hard because that's like when I was getting out, it was either like, okay, you assess for the tier one asset and you go to that unit or you kind of get out. You can get out and like go to school is, mm -hmm. is kind of what my options were. And Andy was going to go, Andy went to the tier one unit and he was like my best friend. And so it was, it's hard. Cause like that, it could have been me, you know, like I think about that all the time. Like it was week to week, you know, like mm -hmm. I was like, do I go here or do I go to school? do I go here? Do I go to school? You know, and you get those rumblings, like the war is winding down or mm -hmm. you don't, you're trying to guess what, what's going to happen. And you can't guess, you know, like you, you can't have perfect information all the time. So you just kind of got to make do with, 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 with what you got. But um, yeah. Uh, I did a couple other deployments on that as a same similar type. And I went to Iraq another time, uh, one time to, that was cool. It was more urban, um, mm -hmm. a lot of fun there, different mission, like a lot more helicopters landing in front yards, assaulting, doing <laughs> a lot of direct action stuff, which was awesome. Like, yeah, that's cool. A few times I really smiled in deployment and it was one was on that, was on that, uh, after that firefight, we slept in the village and I was just like, like cheek to cheek, just like fell asleep with this huge smile on my face. Like, <laughs> you know, like that sense of fulfillment on those good days. And that was awesome. And then yeah. The second time was in Iraq and I was just uh, on this helicopter about to land in this guy's front yard. And I just like, and I look over and some of the ODA guys were, were a little scared. This is their first deployment. And this is their first like helicopter assault. And I look over and I'm like, giddy, 
Like I'm like this, <laughs> this is what this is what we're here for, you know. Ooh. Like this shit is fucking awesome. And uh, yeah, those are the two times. Like just operating at the level that I wanted to operate at, do all the skill, like apply every skill that I had trained for, you know, and really kind of fulfill that. And that was that was that was truly fulfilling for me. So it's another uh, thing that comes with working, you know, at, in tight knit groups and tight small teams, either in the army or you yeah. know a squad level. Like it's a contagious thing when you have a group of guys that are just meat eaters. Because you come in and it's either you're going to conform and you're going to become that or you're probably not going to do well in that team. But most often it turns into it's so much, like you said, they're operating at such a high level, you want to be on that level. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, whatever it is they're doing that I'm not doing, I'm changing because that's what I want to emulate. And that's yeah. how people you're like, where's your playbook? You know, like, what are you doing? Because I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And I want to, yeah. So you telling me that if I do this, 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 and this, I can be that? Yes, I want that. And I'm Roger. I'll do that. Yep. Yep. Solid yep. copy. Yeah. Uh, it says uh, September. You leave active duty September '09, and you enlist in the National Guard in Portland, Oregon. Are we Are we past that or before that? No. So I did that Iraq deployment, and then I came back and I, I got out uh, or um, enlisted in the in the National Guard uh, in Oregon. So check. And um, in 2012, you get married. Yeah. So I, I get out and I, that, that was a big thing for me. Like, do I go to assess for this tier one unit? Cause that's what everyone else was doing. And that's what I wanted, you know, but I also kind of like wanted to, I, I was like, I need to get a degree. There was like this thing that told me that this like needed to be done, you know? And I think that was just my like practical self telling me that, Hey, you need this. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do whatever else you're going to do after this and so I, I don't know. I listened to that. And honestly, it was 50, 50, you know, that I was probably say, were you torn on that on leaving? To, I was, to, yeah. I think it changed. It changed every week, you know, for that last year, it changed every week. And had I not gone on all the deployments I had gone, honestly, I probably would have assessed and gone up to the tier one unit. I think I had a sense of fulfillment, you know, like mm-hmm. having those moments of, okay, you did everything you, you wanted to do was was fulfilling and if i hadn't had that feeling i know guys that haven't and they you can tell like they're they're looking for it and they and they and they want to make like they're searching for something inside of themselves that says hey this is what i'm capable of please put me in a position to show myself that i was capable of it and Mm -hmm. and that i know i can see that fire in people's eyes and some of these guys and and I know that they're looking for it and, and they will like search the ends of the earth to, to find it, you know, and I, not just the military, but I see it in some civilian guy, like some of these guys that are pushing some of the recreation they do, like skydivers climbing these mountains, like they have that same fire. They're yeah. looking for this internal answer, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I don't know if they're going to find it, you know, um, it's hard. I don't know either, but I would, I would say this. I would say I would rather spend my life searching for that and yeah. never find it than to never search for that. You're exactly right. You know, it's a spiritual thing, you know, whether you're religious or not, it's a spiritual thing to try to find yourself. And like a lot of our generation got to meet themselves, you know, in the ultimate arena. If you don't have that, that, that option, you know, and you're after that, there, there's still tons of things you can do to find yourself. I guarantee you, uh, but that's sure. where a lot of us found ourselves at. Yeah, the extreme sports is crazy. My my brother is into, my older brother, he's into like, 
I don't know how extreme it is, but pretty like way, way more extreme than I'm into for like leisurely riding of a mountain bike, but he hits like crazy trails that are, that are specifically for, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not into it, but I get it. Like I get after it, dude. I get it completely. Um, but that's good. That's the way I feel about, uh, anything that I feel passionate about. And I would say that to the audience too. If you have something that you feel passionate about, you got to do it. You get, you get one go around and you're only getting older and more responsibilities. You get after it, whatever it is that brings it out of you. So, so now you're in the national guard and you're not single and, uh, and responsibility free anymore. So you go to school. Um, but you also yeah. are still in the National Guard, which means you can still deploy. So it says November 2012, you deployed Afghanistan as a JTAC attached to ODA 3112 at a third group. Which is yeah, that's Johnny's group. team. Now, is that the first time you met Johnny? Yep, first time I met Johnny. So okay, somehow now I'm going to need some first impressions oh. of you meeting Johnny because I'm sure that it wasn't <laughs> like a dull moment around him. No, and we can, yeah, we could talk about Johnny all day, but. Uh, <laughs> So unique about this deployment is I show up and this team just showed up, you know? So it was like this, like weird, okay, we're all here at the same time. Like, let's do this together. And the thing about Johnny's team is that this team was awesome. So lots of seasoned guys, even the new guys were like ready to get after it. You Mm -hmm. know, like they wanted to learn, they were hungry. They were asking all the right questions. So even though I had kind of been out of the game a little bit, I showed up and it was easy for me to get back into it. And like, I, I instantly knew that like, okay, this team's gonna, we're gonna, they're gonna do a lot of good work here for the next month. So, and Johnny was part of that equation, you know, like the leadership was awesome. Both the captain and the team sergeant were, they knew what lanes they were in. They stayed in their lanes. They gave the work that they needed to do to, to the guys that needed to do it. And everyone just seemed to kind of be on board and and everyone was super supportive. And honestly, it was one of the best teams I had that, that had the best chemistry out of any of these teams that I had deployed with. So, um, so I have seen different like command elements that are that, that kind of influence at the team level and, and that can be toxic. Um, but sometimes teams can overcome that, um, depending on it's easier with an ODA cause you're kind of isolated your way out. You don't see the command element as often. Um, but with these ODAs, like, with third group, third group probably had one of the best reputations out of all the groups, just from the leadership. They were the first ones to deploy to Afghanistan. They were gaining a ton of experience early on. And so more or less your chances of getting on a good team with good chemistry and, and a good spot were fairly high with third group and, and seventh group was there and 10th group too, but um, first group and fifth group were, were kind of coming in there as well. And so you kind of took your chances, but with this team, the, the leadership was was confident. So as a as a ODA uh, commander, you, you don't come in through the X-ray program. You have to be infantry, an infantry commander first. So that was good. And and see, I saw that leadership and carried in like you could tell in the confidence, the planning cycle, everything was methodical. It was it right. gave you a lot of confidence to go out and try new things because you knew that the leadership kind of knew what they were doing and they would rein it in. Um and I say the chemistry is good too, and at the team level, the tactical level, because you had, I don't consider myself a hard charger. Like I'm not, when we start getting shot at, I'm not the guy grabbing the rifle and running towards the fire. That's not how I've been trained, right? Like my, my training is like, where's the fire coming from? Let's organize a fire's plan. Let's figure out how to isolate. Let's figure out how to do, you know, like 
it's much more, I kind of start going into the strategic level and start planning immediately. Mm -hmm. And the captain or the command, the commander was similar to me too. And so we would get together and instantly start scheming. The chemistry that was balanced was that the team sergeant was like really good at just trying to understand the whole tactical level and, and play that intermediary. And then Johnny and this other guy, Rusty, 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 you know, so Rusty, uh, these two together are, I mean, you do not want these two together and these two were together. So it's like the adventures of like, of Tom and Huckleberry Finn, you know, like you're like, you're going where you're doing what you grabbed how many dudes. Okay. Uh, like, let us know next time, you know, like, so it's kind of this, like, Hey, the cat. So we go through a bunch of missions. You shared that video, uh, of the cast with the A 10s and Mm -hmm. we're getting danger close. Yeah. And and that's rusty unloading. And, and, uh, we just got shot at and he's just like going to town on these. We're dropping artillery. I call in the A 10 and, and we're operating like at a really like high level. And there's like, Rusty and I are really connected. Johnny and I are connected. We understand like workflows. Like we'd have this incident go down. We'd get troops in contact. And after that, Johnny would be like, Hey man, like, I think I should have put some smoke down or something so you could see that. And so after that, he'd come get my grenade launcher and he'd, when he dismount, he'd come grab my grenade launcher and launcher and walk with that. And like, he'd start lobbing rounds out for me, you know, so I could see better. Yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that, that, and we got to this point we're at like a month or two in where, I mean, you can hear on that, on that YouTube video with like, I don't know what it is, like 5 million views, but Rusty's just getting after it. And he's just saying, Chris, walk him in closer. You know, like yeah. that was where we got to, like, he knew what to say. I knew what he was trying to say. I knew how to walk him in. And I mean, I put him out 250 meters and walked him in. Rusty wanted him like 50 meters on top of him. him. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm like, that. that's not how this works, man. So yeah. no, those shots yeah. were baller though. And I know when I had talked to, um, I haven't met or talked to Rusty. We tried to set that up. Um, but I think he was out of the country regardless yeah. of whatever reason it was, uh, that story and that video, like you can definitely see, the rounds walking closer and closer. And then Johnny said, man, I'm gonna tell you what, on the last run, we seen body parts fly. And I'm like, Oh God. All right. Well, that's where Rusty wanted it then. Cause he was, yeah, well, Rusty gets on, he's like, and it, usually he's yelling. He's like, closer, get him close more. Ah, <laughs> You're like, what, what do you say? What? Stop. Like, calm down. And then like, once it was like 50 meters, he's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's close enough. Yeah, You got him right there. Good. <laughs> Don't come no closer. <laughs> let, me, let me know if it's closer. So, I mean, we got good at like syncing up and, and everything was great. And then by the third month, it was like troops in contact. I'm dismounting. I got my radio. I'm trying to coordinate. And Rusty is gone with Johnny. And they got like five guys. They're running. It became this game like who could get them first. It was a friendly game. But I mean, this so that I'm, I'm still I get sick every time I tell this story. But um, we're gone and troops in contact. Rusty's dismounted. He's got his ANA guys, his partners. He's got them trained up where they know like how they dismount, where they're going. They Johnny's calling in while Rusty's leading. And uh it becomes this game like who can get them first. So F-16 show up. They're on this ridge line, they're shooting at us. I get coordinates. I start working my my fire stuff and I, and we got them on. And then like right before I say you're cleared hot will or the uh the commander goes hey rusty where are you and rusty drops this grid and i'm like 
look at the map. I'm like, God damn it. Not there. And, and I go, dude, he's right on top of him. And he oh, goes, no. how many minutes do you have? And I'm like, uh, time of flight is probably like, like 90 seconds. He's like, Johnny, Rusty, get the fuck out of there and get like, you're like, you need to pull back. And I'm like, okay, cleared hot. And so they, <laughs> Rusty goes, okay, got you. And he starts running back and I go, okay, yeah, you're cleared hot. And then we, we, we deep dive it afterwards. And I look at the points that he was at. He was like 200 meters away from what, from, from the position that we're bombing. Mm-hmm. Will and I were like, sorry, I keep saying, but, um, the, the commander and I were like, okay, like we were both sick to our stomachs, you know, like. It, we were both operating so well we got a little complacent and like was like anything could have happened and we probably we might have had a friendly incident you know and so mm. um it was a thing that like kind of ate at us you know like i don't think the commander was right for like a week you know like he's like fuck we we got complacent we were trying to like operate above what i think we were capable of and and I think I, I I won't say that Rusty learned any lessons either, but he started communicating a little bit more on his assaults, you know. And so mm-hmm. it was all learning, but it, it yeah, it could have been some tragedy. But um, that's probably one of the harder things that I mean to I like I, I can feel the iron in my mouth right now because yeah. of like the yeah. So it's it's, it's hard, like, you know. Like it's like that because oh man that's the game you 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 play and you operate on a high level but the risks that you're taking at that high level are lives and your friends so um yeah 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 I mean, I it. now were you also jtech um he told another story where i thought he said that chris had the had the chopper pilot come in right over top of him and fire a rocket at some guys they were pursuing into pakistan maybe in the pakistani mountains is that so we ended up moving yeah oh that's the same deployment then uh that might have been the the next jtac but who came in and swapped me out but we ended up moving bases so they moved our base from chimkani and it was a little bit closer to to pakistan but uh, i don't think that that was our mission but we ended up going to another village and there was just a ton of firefights and and everything like they hadn't had a u.s presence there They, they had a french presence and the french abandoned the base and then we took it over um and it was like this hotbed uh, only like maybe 30, 40 miles away, I think from Bagram, the South okay. of Bagram. So, so pretty close. It was like weird that there was this huge pocket of, of yeah. fighters. And, but, um, we ended up doing a big mission and, and, uh, one of the helicopters got shot down outside of the base. So they were trying to secure everything and they sent our troop over there to, to, to secure it. And we ended up going and, and maybe we can talk about leadership, like, this is one of the pitiful moments that I, I truly respected the commander and, and this team, like we show up and the, the other, there were other elements there that were kind of like, they were on the base most of the time and they were providing security, but, but they were, this helicopter was in the open, right? The pilots had been able to get out and come back and run back to the base. And so they were okay, but we needed to secure this site. Mm-hmm. They went in, they started taking some, some fairly heavy machine gun fire. So the U S troops fell back and, and they were on this road and it was like, this road is the line, you know, and if they went across it, they were going to get shot at. So they were just deliberating and, and they went back and forth and back and forth. And, and finally we were on another mission and they asked us to come over. So we get over there and, and the commander and I dismount and we go talk to them and they're, I mean, they're like spitballing. They're like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or how do we do that? Or what if this happens or what? And we look at each other and we're like, 
what are, like, what are we talking about here? There's a US helicopter that's down in this field, right? That we need to secure. We could talk about this all day, you know? So the commander comes out, he's like, no, we're not doing any of that. We are going to salt up the middle. You guys secure that flank and you need to push until you get to that flank. And once we get to those points, then we'll rehash and figure out new movements for everybody, you know? So like, stop, like we cannot have the perfect intel all the time. Like at some point we have to draw a line in the sand and we need to move, you know? And, and I remember sitting there listening to him do that. And I was like, I got some chills on the back of my neck and I was like, fuck yeah. And I turn around, walk back to the truck and I'm like, this is what we're doing. And, and everyone's like on board. <clears throat> we walk down, we we're driving through the Wadi and we get in there all of a sudden, like volleys of fire from everywhere. There's sniper fire going by my head. Um, there's machine gun fire from the front. There's machine gun fire from the left or from the right. Rockets are coming in and, and we assault like straight in and we, we dismounted and we're running through this wadi and the medic and I are running and we get to the, to the first berm that we get to and we're laying down. We just kind of look at each other and we're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this feels like Norm, is this what Normandy felt like? And there's like rounds going over and we both were like, I think this is Normandy as a, as like a, you know, the dark humor that yeah yeah every military member. Yeah. And we kind of just laugh and then we're like, okay. And so we, we end up kind of pulling up and we put some, um, some targets down for the helicopters. They see the snipers in this building that are to the South of us on the, on the other face. And uh, the helicopters come in and they put some rockets into the house and end up um, suppressing that fire. And then, so it's just like full frontal assault on this row of houses in front of us. Uh, there's other fire coming in from another spot. So I, I couldn't get comms with the truck that was taking all the fire. And they're, they're fine. Like Gunner and, and the guys are in there. They just can't see where the fire is coming from. And I'm trying to call it in and, and they can't hear. So I run across the wadi and jump in the back of the truck and just tell them with my um, face to face. And they turn the gun and just light this whole thing up oh, yeah. and the fire stops and, um, so then it like, then we just push forward. Everyone else was, it was, it was fucking awesome, man. It was like, was this like a, like a census to contact Were you guys doing direct action raid on this, on this area? Or was it like they shot the helicopter and now you had to pay for it and we're going to secure the site and they just happened to be the, the resistance between you. It was a full village that was like fully owned and operated by Taliban okay. and Americans had not been in there for, for probably months on end. No one from the base had left to go in there. So when we got there, they did a full uh, commando mission and they dropped them in the middle of the night and they just drove forward. Commandos are like the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, ODAs that are attached to this like special Afghan unit mm -hmm. and they drop them off in Chinooks and then they just start clearing villages through the night. So they had actually fully fronted, like full frontal assaults into this valley, clearing the village the night before. We were fighting all day. And then this helicopter got shot down at Kiowa. So that's when we went to go to go be like, because we were the only ones with trucks. So yeah. we ended up going back and securing this helicopter site. So it, it was kind of like this direct action mission up front on the front on the front side. But this was like another front down to the south that that hadn't been cleared out either. Mm -hmm. So we ended up going down there and that's where the helicopter landed. And we were clearing out that that village the next morning. We came right because we were taking so much fire. We're like, we should probably come back here in the morning. Yeah, so no secured the helicopter and then they came in, picked the Chinook, picked it up. Uh, we ended up 
securing the site around it and everything was good. And then went back to camp, camp that night and then came back out, got another firefight that next morning. I think Johnny took some uh, rocket, some rocket shrapnel in his foot. Some other guys uh, got dinged up, but all in all, like no one, no one was, no one was seriously injured or killed. So that was like, Score. for me, it was, yeah, it was, it was good. You know, like for me, it allows me to tell those stories without, I know it's hard for other guys to tell some of those stories because sometimes those days are the worst days, you know? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah man. Uh, Impressive. That's um, if you took, if you took one thing away from, from gunfights like that, and you could tell somebody that's coming up in uh, either as a JTAC or as an ODA guy, what, what would be uh, a kernel of advice that you would pass on or, or multiple, but your top ones. Yeah. Um, my thing is always ask questions. Like it's, you want to be wherever you want to be, like put yourself in that position and then ask the questions to get to that position, you know? And, and I, I'm always like, my dad has always told me to challenge everything. And, and I always, I'm always kind of, I'm kind of known as the, the guy that's asking the, the challenging questions. And I, and those are the challenge, like I want to live in the gray space and I want to try to make more black and white space in that gray space, you know, like Absolutely. let's get all that black and white space out and let's just, let's see where, like where it really dials into. And, um, and I like that. I like challenging, challenging what's, what's happening. Like, are we doing this right? Can we do it differently? Can we like just ask the question if it, if it's not going to work, then okay, maybe we address it later. But, um, I've always kind of, try to try to do that and be a sponge until you like ask those questions and try to get that information until you're there. So, great, which great, great I'm going to say that now, but I don't think you'll ever be there. So, <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's move past that. Is that now, was that yeah. your last deployment? It was. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to move out now. Um, if you don't mind hitting on a little bit of transition for me, as you transitioned away from deploying, I know one thing for me that, that I struggled with was I didn't get out on my own, you know, on my own, uh, recognizance, let's say that, you know, I had some, some injuries to my ears and, and, uh, psychological damage after Marja, um, worked through it for a couple years and then I get out, but getting out for me was, uh, was difficult in the, in the sense that everything I'd done my, in my adult life to that point was be a Marine, be an infantry, be, be be the best at that. And that doesn't, you know, as a gunfighter translate great if you're not taking a shooter job to the civilian world. So like, I felt like instantly like this lack of purpose or like, um, that I needed to fill the void of my purpose. Uh, so I went to school and, and, and I know you had already went to school, but, um, but you go back to school, right? Yeah. So when I got in, I, I thought that I want to go to school. And, and when I was in, I was like, this is awesome. Like overseas learning, like geopolitics, understanding governments, understanding people. Like I, I love talking to people. I enjoy interacting with people and, and being over there was really fulfilling, you know, helping these villages, helping these people, trying to bring them things that I thought they needed, you know, like, um, so that was, that kind of lit a fire. And I, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I thought that's where I wanted to be. And, and I ended up when we got back from that last deployment, I, I went to law school um, and law school was, was good. It was challenging. It was intellectually challenging and it was, it was fun in that sense. But when I started interning, it was, it was more difficult for me. It was hard. It was 
sometimes you're just in a room and you don't feel like it's your peers, you know, like, mm. and so that was, that was difficult, you know, cause I had moved my family and my wife, we had moved to the East coast and we we're going, I was going to school for this and it was just hard. It was a difficult decision. And, but after a year and after working, interning, um, I was like, I don't think it's for me to my wife. And so we made the decision like, okay, just finish law school out, see it out. We'll go back to Portland and, and my wife can, can continue her career there and I'll, I'll figure it out, you know? So, yeah, I don't know when I, when I reminisce on it, um, I think I was searching for something, but when I got to there, it wasn't the same, like after two years of training to be a combat controller, I was itching to go, you know, mm-hmm. after three years of training to be a lawyer, I, I wasn't itching to get, you know, I was yeah. like, yeah, it just, so, um, I needed to figure it out. So, after school, I came back and we moved back to, to Portland. My wife was working where she was working. And then uh, I, I found like product development uh, through a friend of mine. And we started talking and they do, they manage like businesses for that do like a uh, running shoes, trail running shoes. So I, it's kind of like a project manager. Um, so I did that for trail running shoes and running shoes, like endurance running. Sure. And then uh, Benchmade is actually located here in portland and so i don't know if you had benchmades when you were in but i did yeah so i had all benchmade i had like the push button stuff oh, yeah. i had blades yeah and i mean i used them in combat and when i found out that they were there like i started reaching out um and i ended up getting this job now where I'm, i just managed the military tactical knives and it has honestly been one of the it's been an awesome job because i it, it has brought me back to the mindset of this mentality where you are like, this is your craft and you need the right tools to work that craft. And it allows me like, yeah, they're knives. Like it's a gun, it's a knife, it's a vest, it's, it's equipment. But what I find truly fulfilling is like, I get to talk to all my buddies that are still in and like, say, Hey man, what's working for you? What are you doing? How are you going through that? Why'd you do that? Why'd you do this? You know? And it's, it's fulfilling to get to work on the problems that they have and, and help them kind of solve any problems that they have. So, yeah, hundred percent. I was, um, I was just out at Lejeune a couple months ago now, maybe, and they had a best sniper competition with some of the guys out there where they had a vendor day, you know, and the vendors come out and it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome to go out there and see what our generation of warfighters is developing or has developed for the next generation of warfighters. It's like, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's like, it's, 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 uh, encouraging to see. It's, it's something that you can do as a warfighter post warfighting. You can get out, you can either like in the show like this, we're spreading knowledge, spreading experience, but these vendors are going out there and saying, Hey, when I was in my kit, look, I like had to tailor a kit because I needed a kit like this. Now I made the kit. Now you guys can exploit this kit for what it, you know, for what we didn't have. And yeah. I, lo- I love that about them. Everything from new drop cords to the new weapons. And then, you know, a lot of stuff now is, is uh drone affiliated or oriented because that's just yeah. kind of becoming the way. Right. And so, um, very cool to see that that stuff come out. I, I was a big, uh, to talk about Benchmade. They used to, they, I want to say they gave us knives before almost every deployment. Like there'd be a certain amount of knives that would go out to the, to the line, uh, line companies. And shoot, we loved getting new bench made stuff. They're the best. They're, they are the best. That's a fact or yeah. among the best. That's for sure. Um, what's cool. What's cool about this job is that like, 
a knife is very different from a rifle or, or even like calling in casts, right? Like this tool is an instrument that requires a different mindset. And that's what I'm finding out is that in order to implement this tool, like you have to be very intimate with your enemy and, mm. and that's what I, it's very poetic. And I, I'm actually really enjoying that aspect of it because knife culture is very different from like firearm. And I've worked a couple booths. So I've gone to a couple trade shows and I'm, I mean, you sit behind a Benchmade booth with knives. Like I get Vietnam vets that are there telling me stories that they haven't told anybody, you know, because mm-hmm. they see these knives and they're like, I remember using this for that and this and the other thing. You're like, interesting. I don't think your wife knows that, but <laughs> you know, like something brought you out. And like, I tell them I'm in the military to that. And they, it just like, yeah, it just kind of flows out and it's really cool. It's, it's been, um, it's been, uh, I don't know what the right word is for like, it's been soothing to kind of just talk through some of this stuff, especially sure. for, yeah, like cathartic I have almost. Yeah, exactly. Cathartic. That's the perfect word. So, um, yeah, I find it to be the same. I, when I got out, uh, just the culture of the Marine regular infantry, there's a lot of alcohol, right? That's what we do. We go in war and, you know, I think the Naval hospital puts out more babies per year than maybe anywhere else and that's not a real fact just how it feels you know especially when the op tempo is up it was like you'd come home everybody's having babies or getting their wives pregnant and then boom you're back over and then boom you're back and uh you know there's the partying culture and the alcohol you know culture to the to the a personalities and uh yeah when i got out i i didn't do the things i should have and when i was in i didn't do the things i should have so uh, now I look at that as a chance to come back and do the things I should have, because what I should have done is talk. I should have instantly came home and started talking, but that's not what any of us want to do when we get home. Um, yeah, man. And that's exactly what I tell like all my buddies that are, I mean, anyone that came in from 2001 to 2004, right. They're all about to get out. And when I see them now, I'm like, Hey, you got a whole network of dudes that are out there, you know, like, you got guys like not everyone stays in for 20 years you got half your network is out work in the civilian world you know like reach out to them like mm-hmm. i think linkedin is a very underutilized resource in that you like you click on that thing and it tells you every other jtac you know oh, that's yeah. in the country and, and it's it's awesome seeing my feed filled with like their work stuff and i'm like that that shit's awesome what they're doing and definitely and it allows us to kind of all help each out each help each other out you know and it, it's a way that my wife worked at Nike and they all help each other. They all like one person goes to another company and they will vet that person out and say, yeah, bring them over. Mm-hmm. And for some reason we don't do that. We do it to a certain extent, like veterans, especially the op, like special operations community somehow, like we all, I don't know. So someone else gets a little more successful and we get a little bitter or, yeah. It's kind of like this, like it's the personalities, you know, it's personalities. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, we need to help each other, you know, like we need to create a network of dudes. And like, just when I go somewhere and you need me vet, you need me to vet you out for that employer. Like, yes, I will send that. I will, I will vet you out all day. If you did those things, like I know what it takes for right. what you did in that job. Like I can, I can speak to that and I'm happy to speak to it, you know, to your character and your loyalty and, and the things that matter in the workplace nowadays, you know, they're kind of under, under relished, I think, or under, undervalued. I couldn't agree more. I love LinkedIn and I'm new to it. Um, as of, you know, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, maybe early, early June or, or middle of May, I got on there and one of my mentors was like, dude, you're not on there. 
Uh, you need to get on there like today, make a profile, call me back when it's done kind of thing. And I got on there. Yeah. And I'm loving it because, um, it's the networking. The networking is everything. If you want to get a message out, if you want to in like any message, my, you know, my message might be that I want to help people. Your message might be that you want to sell benchmates, but whatever the message is, when you go into this network of people, like let's say a LinkedIn, then your exposure is going to, going to compound by like a factor of four minimum. You're going to see yeah. all these people. And then that just continues to grow. And I think, um, I like LinkedIn in the fact that it's not as um, politically and troll driven, I think, as some of like the Instagram and the Facebook. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I really enjoy that. It's almost like a professional uh, atmosphere. And, and at first I thought Twitter was that. Um, but I almost think that I like LinkedIn better than I like Twitter. Uh, mm. Time will tell what happens with Twitter. I'm not sure exactly how all that's going to shake out. Like yeah. With the I mean, we have the Facebook groups, right? That like kind of, it's like the team room mentality, you know, mm -hmm. like we're all professionals and we all operate a high level too. And like, it's, it's like, okay, we need to go to the team room. But when you come up to the briefing room, like that's how I think of LinkedIn. Like, <laughs> yeah, let's get, let's get our stuff on. Let's get the uniform and we'll go up there. And we need both, you know, like yeah. we need the team room and we need this because we are a types driven towards a goal and we want that as well you know and that's right and i i think linkedin kind of it, it's not perfect but it provides a resource to start from for sure and, i think even if you're an employer it's a great place to look with the amount of people that are uploading their resumes and their experience and their activities to that you could really yeah. really really get what you're looking for i think um in that in yeah, that sense sure. so what's the future look like from you or for you benchmade yeah. Yeah, I, I I actually thoroughly enjoy my work at Benchmade. It's awesome getting to like revamp the business and work with a lot of the industry is awesome, man. Like the, the knife industry is awesome. The firearms industry is awesome. Like mm -hmm. I was working in in kind of soft goods is what they call it, so like footwear apparel, and it didn't quite. I like running, but it just didn't flow with me the 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 culture of it. Culture of it, yeah. But there are tons of firearms. Um, companies out there, there are tons of, of people in this industry that, that need experts mm -hmm. in the field. They understand the consumer, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they need people like that to work for these companies and help them out. And, and those are the characteristics that they're looking for are, are people in the military. So yeah. People who used their products as experts. Yeah. Okay. And they know what they, they need. It. They actually know what's needed in the field and, and, and past that, they know what the, what veterans are doing now, you know, like, mm -hmm. They all know we work pretty hard and we also play pretty hard, you know? Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, so, yeah. Do, do you hunt much? I actually just started uh, like three years ago hunting and same thing. Like I didn't like hiking. I didn't enjoy going outdoors because somehow the military just ruins anything that's yeah. remotely fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. By all the um, mandatory fun they make you have with it. Yeah. But hunting is awesome, man. Like being out there and, and, it's a different way to interact with nature and it oh, is, yeah. it is cathartic. And it's, it's something that I, I've like, I'm like, wait, I, my tactics haven't left, you know? And yeah, yeah. as I'm hunting with, they're like, I notice you keep like turning your rifle and slinging it every time you're moving through stuff. And like, I like that. And you're like, oh, I didn't even know I was doing that. You I know, that and, was common knowledge to all. No. Okay. Roger. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, man. it's ingrained, man. It's very similar in it. And it feels good. It, it just feels good to be out there. Even if you're, you're not finding what you're looking for. Like it's, Oh man. You're getting, you're out getting there. It. Yeah. That's I awesome. I always say my, I, I elk hunt with my dad, uh, 
well, I, I do all kind of hunting, but my favorite is elk hunt with a bow and arrow. And uh, I'm not great at it. I'm 0 for 3 on kills. But, man, when wow. I tell people, people say, man, you spend all that money and you haven't even killed one. And it's like, man, you don't get it. Yeah. Have, have you been at 11,000 feet? Like, have you, you know, have you went above tree leveled and, and, and heard heard elk bugle all night long and loons in the background like that's why i go out there this is this is not about the kill for me it's about the experience and the the kill is just that cherry on top but that the experience of what little um population of people have even seen some of the things that i've seen up on those mountains or been around and and, and it and it does wonders for the soul that's a fact yeah uh, there's an intimate there's an intimacy there you know like when you're tracking and you're trying to figure out what the animal's doing. And you're like, I mean, that you're tied to nature in a very, very different way than mm-hmm. going on a hike. You know, it's, it's, it is, it is, yeah, it's truly incredible on the inside. You can, you can feel it. And it's, it's difficult to explain to people, you know, but it's when you're out there and you're doing it and you, and you're seeing it oh, and it's yeah. unfolding in front of you, you're like, oh, this is what this is. This it's is amazing. why I'm here. Like, yeah. That's exactly yeah. where I can. Yeah, man. You're hooked. It's done. You're like, yeah. I'm the same way with whitetail with anything that I hunt. And like, I used to laugh at like people like, uh, like Ted Nugent, he'd put his videos out and he's a bow hunter and he's rock and roll. But like when he would kill an animal, he would sit down, almost say a prayer with the animal and thank the animal for the bounty and thank him for the experience. And in my old life, older age, that is how I feel. Like when, when I kill an animal, it's a, it's an emotional experience as much as it's a spiritual experience as much as it's a uh in the flesh reality experience and um and man i can't say enough about it especially bow hunters that are getting uh, and and nothing taken away from anybody that doesn't bow hunt but when you're so close to the elk that you can smell his urine off his hind hocks because he's that close to you that's a that hits a little bit different and uh it's it's amazing i love the outdoors i love the west i've been to uh, Colorado for chasing elk. I've been to Wyoming chasing elk and, uh, in Idaho. And so I look to continue to expand that out West trips for sure. Um, I yeah. love it out there. It's beautiful country out there. Beautiful country for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, you're a pretty, okay. So you're a well-spoken guy. You got a lot of experiences. Have you ever thought about putting a book together of some of your experiences? Is that ever anything that, that, fluttered through your mind i'll be honest i've thought about it it's but it's hard because i don't feel like i have an angle and i have a lot of cool friends that have done a lot of cool shit you know so i always measure myself like when i'm standing in the room with those guys kind of hang and it's like man some of the stories these guys have i'm like it's nothing you know and Ah, so it's that's you being humble that's you being humble. You've been in the ODA teams and banging with them and on the streets with them and dropping bombs for them. That's enough right there. And what I would say is to the Air Force guys, like that might be the angle because it's interesting to me. I've never met an Air Force JTAC. Um, and I, not that I didn't know you existed. I just, I, I've never been in a situation where I utilize one. We have our internal JTACs basically with the Marine Corps. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I know you probably help Marines too. It sounded like MARSOC and stuff when needed, but uh, I've never been seen, done, learned anything about that. And, uh, it's interesting and it's interesting for guys that could be in that pipeline to watch this, uh, you know, watch this podcast and say, Hey, that's something or guys that weren't even thinking about it. Say, Hey, here's your end right here. Go to the air force. You got terminal, you know, uh, tactical air controllers and, 
and uh, and guys that fit down in with the teams and down in with different uh, different groups that might be for you. So um, I don't know yeah. how many books have Good been written about that, but uh, I would read it. I mean, I've enjoyed this conversation for the last couple of hours and, and there's, there's a wealth of information there that, that could be really dissected. And as far as the cathartic nature of talking, I love talking. I had to learn to that. And I know we talked about it a little bit and my head skips around too fast. So I didn't stay on track, but the talking is great. The writing was the same way for me. You know, when I would write that down, that became a very therapeutic session of, you know, of, I thought about that just writing, I've heard that writing like on a daily basis helps kind of flow and helps that cathartic nature and, and it gets better and better, but you have to force it and practice it. And I, I think I'm at a point in my life where I, I think I'm open to that. Is that mm-hmm. what you're kind of, I mean, I think so. And I'm not, I, I, I'm not telling anybody what to do. I just know for me to get up, like it's become part of my routine. I've built it in, like I get up, get myself together. And once I'm together, I read for an hour and I write, try to write for an hour. Sometimes writing for an hour can be hard. Uh, reading for an hour is easy for me, but I try to write 30, 45 minutes every single morning, get up and put it down like anything. doesn't matter what it is. Just yeah. ha- like right now I'm writing a book on leadership. So I'm either writing, researching, or doing a little bit of both at that time. And it does something. I don't know if it's dropping serotonin or what it's doing, but that creativity side of the yeah. mind. And when you're going into that, I think it definitely does something positive. And I definitely have become for anybody out there that, you know, is interested in speaking uh, becoming a better speaker when you are speaking, even if that's not your sole profession, but if you have to do, uh, you know, orders or briefs or things with your team to write and to read are the bis- biggest two things you could do. Uh, read and soak up the knowledge. It makes you a better speaker and writing makes you a better speaker. And that's something that I had to learn the hard way. I tried to just get out here and do everything. And I learned, hang on, you got to go to school and learn some stuff. And then you just have to practice all the time. And, uh, yeah. and take it in. So I love everything about it. Um, we've been going a little while. If you don't have any any uh, crazier stories, uh, we can cut it loose. And if you have more crazy stories, man, I'd love to just keep on going. And if it's not stories and this is just uh, uh, anything, parting shots you have for, for the audience or. Uh, yeah, advice? I mean, I'm trying to think of anything, especially like Johnny, because you said like we're connected through Johnny, but. And Rusty too, like the whole team was awesome. And I, I obviously can't mention all those guys, but Johnny's story, like, no, we probably can't tell that one. Um, yeah. But yeah, Johnny yeah, will tell uh, anything. You don't give a damn. Man, Johnny, Johnny's a smooth operator, dude. He's a, he's a good dude. And I would definitely, he's on, he's on team, uh, team Chris, if we ever get deployed again. So yeah, he, uh, I remember we were walking and he's dismounted and we're, it's after a long mission and we're walking back and we had the working dog and he was, he was sitting next to Johnny walking next to Johnny. And this, uh, this dog came out of nowhere, um, just local Afghan dog and was walking up and started just barking at the working dog and like got so close, just darted. And it was so fast. I turn around, Johnny's talking to the, to the dog, um, to dog guy and, Johnny just turns around, smokes this dog, right? Like it's running up, just smokes it, doesn't even hesitate, just turns, smokes it, and just turns back right around and starts talking, like didn't miss a beat. <laughs> just like, I got Johnny, he just smoked that dog. He's like, hey, man, ain't no one going to mess with our working dog, you know? Like, and he didn't even think about it. It just like. Not happening. He's no, like that in his whole life, though. 
He is, man. He's always like, he's never on one thing. He's always on the next thing, you know, like he cracks me up. Yeah. And he's, he's awesome. high. He's a high energy dude, man. He, 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 he keeps me it. on my toes when I'm around him. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta just like breathe and watch Johnny make sure I stay up with him. Yeah. <laughs> if he was too much during the team meetings, you're like, Johnny, you need to go run like 10, 15 miles and then come back. You, you need, need to go, go calm it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he would though. He just ran a hundred mile a hundred mile race in the Blue Ridge Mountains. He's telling me about. I'm like, oh my god, man, crazy, crazy. Good, dude. Well, Chris, I appreciate the stories. I appreciate everything you've done. Not not just for Johnny and the teams over there, but for the country in general. I mean, you're you're a patriot. You're a hero in my book, man. You get downrange with some of those some of those situations can get extremely intense. Um, if you were to speak to the current hitters right now, what would you tell them? We're moving into a time where we're Call it peacetime, call it an in-between time, call it whatever you want to call it, but what would you tell them right now? Um, are they there or are they already hitters? No, they're the hitters, the people they're, that they're are there now. Yeah, yeah the, that are time, you know, like you, you will always have that warrior spirit. Like you will always have it. it. It's not going away. I still catch myself saying I I am a combat controller when I talk to civilians and I've had people correct me like you were, and I'm like, okay, I, yeah, technically I was, but like, I, it's a part of me, you know, like it's, mm. it's part of my identity. It formed who I am, how I live my life now. And, and even when I get out, like, I still feel like I, it, it's, it's everything that it could be to me, you know, and, and don't be afraid if these guys are, there's a lot of guys getting out, you know, that I talk to and don't be afraid to ask, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your network. Like, there's a lot of good dudes out there that are doing a lot of good things. And if you need help, like professionally, personally, like we got to talk more, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I think what you're doing is, is very important. You know, like you might not be talking to every single person all the time, but just having that conversation and someone watches what you're watching, they might reach out and have that next conversation. It might snowball to the, to the guy that needed it at the time that he needed it, you know? And yeah, that's the yeah. And so I, I appreciate what you're doing, man. And I, if there's anything else that like I can help her um, with anything. So just let me know. But I, I, I'm truly thankful for what you're doing, man. It's awesome. Man, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you, Chris. And I appreciate guys like you guys, guys that will come on and share the experience. And, and, and again, it's a selfless thing. When you think about it, you're coming on and sharing experience. You're not getting anything out of this. I didn't pay you any money. We're having a conversation with each other with the hopes that somebody will see this and take something from it for the positive johnny said he got paid yeah johnny would tell you that. <laughs> johnny would say he got paid he probably told you got paid tons of money no yeah. <laughs> he got paid with a hour and a half trip here so he could burn and turn and burn and get back to dc when he recorded last time yeah yeah no yeah. no i love him i love it i love the conversation and and like a lot of things it's like a lot of people don't have conversations like this like you're hard pressed to find outside a podcast people who even have their friends over and sit down without gadgets and without TVs and without radios and sit and talk about issues around a table. And that's what yeah. we need more of that because yeah. when we talk about it, it's going to induce action. And when we induce action, we can actually change things for the better for each other. And, uh, and, and, and back to the team mentality, anything's possible together. Uh, as an individual, there are things that are possible and you can attain some things. You can attain some, some money, you can attain some assets, you can do that. But to truly affect change, you need people. Um, you need to invest in each other and help each other. So, Chris Jones, I appreciate it. And um, we'll talk again soon. 
Thanks, Ryan. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks, and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah.